0: I believe health is the greatest form of wealth we have, which is why I'm proud to be partnered with Brothers in Arms. Brothers in Arms is a wellness brand dedicated to working with veterans, first responders, and anyone on the front line. Through their education, support, and premium CBD products, they help alleviate and restore the lives of those that have been affected by physical and mental trauma. Learn about the life-changing benefits and power of CBD and join their community today. Links can be found on the MCP website and IG page. Hello everyone. Welcome to Multiple Calls episode 45, I'm Scott Hewlett. It's highly likely that your department doesn't operate as a cohesive team when it comes to fires. The flash is the same on everyone's shoulder, but the number of crews you have times the number of platoons you have is the real number of fire departments that stand behind the name. If you have ever heard a crew state a variation of, we don't like A, B, or C, so we're gonna operate like X, then this resonates. If your response to a typical fire is one crew, then fill your proverbial boots with how you think fires should be fought. But as soon as a second truck shows up, it's giving the community a problem that they didn't call for. It's taking our disagreements into their home or place of business, and there's no time for it. In these moments, each crew's kitchen table decisions manifested into actions and inactions have consequences for the victims, other crews, and ironically, for them as well. Maybe, just maybe, some of the fires that, quote-unquote, just turned on us, might not have if we were all turned to the same page in the playbook. But it's easy to hide that in the chaos in the crowd after the fact. If we have confirmed anything up until this point in our storied history, it's that coordination matters. From truck placement and radio work, to fire attack and ventilation. Even if we don't feel a line between our own houses, We need to be organized based on whatever the current department standards are when we are responding to someone else's. No one's lives should be hedged on opinions. My guests this episode, along with co-founder Will Pidgeon, were looking over the landscape of the fire service in 2010 and knew without a doubt that a company could aggregate all the critical information needed quickly on an emergency incident in a practical technological interface and make it easy to use, addressing our deep need for organization. They did what firefighters should do best, recognized a problem, found a solution, and took action to solve it. Here's my chat with Andy Bozzo. Why don't you start by telling me where you grew up and tell me about your family dynamic?
1: I grew up in the Monterey Bay area, which is in the central coast of California, probably a couple hours south of San Francisco for folks who are listening and not familiar with California geography. Family dynamic, I'm number seven of seven in a very large Italian family that were immigrants my parents are second generation my grandparents or my grandfather's immigrated from southern Italy so we have our background in farming and storekeeping and I think the idea was just to get out of there because the economy was so bad I'm one of six other kids and did my schooling in the central coast of California
0: and how was that experience for you
1: yeah, it was great. I mean, growing up in a big family was great. There was always something going on. A lot of our occasions are centered around family and holidays and stuff like that. So I'd like to say I've tried to continue that tradition with my own family and I'm really proud of the family that I came from.
0: How were all the brothers and sisters spaced out? Were you guys in the same school at the same time?
1: So my parents kind of had six in a row from 1957 to 1963. And quite honestly, I think I was a big giant oops. So <laughs> eight years later, here here I come to spoil the fun for number six, who thought she was going to be the, the youngest and the favorite. In some respects, I'm kind of an only child because my oldest sister was 14 when I was born and she was out in the world by the time I was just in grammar school. There was a little bit of time where it was just me and my parents and a couple of the ones that hadn't gotten married yet trickling in and out of the house, but was still really fun to have such older brothers and sisters
0: are you guys all spread across the states now or are you still in the same area do you see everybody regularly
1: we see everybody pretty regularly we have one of uh, my sisters is in new york the other one is in washington state and then everybody else is in california and then they all have kids so my kids have a ton of cousins my kids have 20 some odd cousins and they're for the most part western centered but we've got some that are moving to new york and some in seattle and so yeah it's doing its trip around the u.s
0: and were you guys into sports and hobbies as kids how did that work for you
1: I'd say my brothers and sisters kind of did the standard sports. Back in the day in the 70s, girls sports wasn't a huge deal, except for maybe like swimming and track and some of the individual sports. My sisters were not really a ton into sports. My brothers played football and basketball and baseball through grammar school and up into high school. And I think my oldest brother played some junior college football as well, but that was about it. And then I'm kind of the one that really got into athletics. I think it was so my mom could keep me busy because there was no one around to watch me because my oldest brother and sisters were off and away in college, so... One of the things that we do here on the coast of California is a thing called junior lifeguards and it's really similar to New Zealand and Australia the lifesaver program where as a kid you're raised on the beach and you're raised to deal with things like rip currents and swimming out into the ocean and you know it trains you to become a lifeguard it's a good pathway into the lifeguard program and here in California a lot of the beach lifeguard associations are administered to by the fire department so like in the silliest example baywatch that's LA County Fire but then there's also California state lifeguard. So that's what a lot of kids do. They don't necessarily go on to lifeguards, but they definitely get early into fitness. And then I sort of along with that, I gravitated towards uh, swimming swimming water polo. I grew up as a competitive swimmer, I swam competitively and played competitive water polo all the way through high school. And then I kind of had a choice to make. I got offers from different schools to play water polo, and I got offers from different schools to swim. And I chose swimming and then tried to do both, but both was really hard to do at the Division One level. So kind of ended my career. First at the University of Southern California, found out I was a pretty mediocre swimmer compared to all the Olympians that were there. And then transferred to a Division Three college in the middle of Vermont called Middlebury. As a goof, after my swimming eligibility ran out, and I did four years of swimming, I walked onto the lacrosse team and that ended up being probably the most valuable sports experience in my life in terms of learning roles and how important a role is. I was accustomed in high school, at least to being the star, the center of attention. And with college swimming and then finishing up with college lacrosse, you really learn how to segment down into a role player.
0: Had you had a lacrosse stick in your hands before that? Because that's a pretty fast-paced hand-eye coordination sport to just get into later, usually, just like hockey up here, right? When you're a kid, it's best to learn to skate and handle a puck at that point because it's really hard to learn as an adult.
1: Yeah, for sure. So I grew up in a high school that had lacrosse. So even in California, you know, we were one of the few schools in the 1980s to have a lacrosse team. But I had a stick in my hand from freshman year, but I never tried out for the team. It was a small school, so they were always just trying to recruit athletes. But I, oh, I got to swim, I got to swim, that's my main sport. And so I was swimming nine and a half months out of the year, and the other months I was playing water polo. And there was a lot of overlap. So I really loved the game. I used to watch the game and I would play pickup with my friends. So I did know how to wield a stick. But honestly, the whole walk onto the lacrosse thing was, I think, a bunch of the boys sitting around with beers saying, well, my eligibility is up. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? Because a lot of us were going to do fifth year and it was a joke. Oh, Andy's going to walk onto the lacrosse team. And I thought, hey, I can handle a stick. And someone said, no, 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 you'll make a fool of yourself. I said, "Okay, that's it. It's on now. So I just worked really hard to kind of polish off those stick skills and learn really quickly the best way I was going to make it onto that team was just by becoming a defenseman and learning how to run with my guy and scoop up the odd ground ball and clear it and take shots to the chest as a crease defenseman. So I didn't have to have the most technical skills on the field. I just had to be able to recognize defensive angles and run with my guy and give a check every now and then and be in my zone, play my role. And I really, I think I have more fingers than I had playing minutes, but I totally enjoyed the experience as a bench player, as a practice player. It was just probably one of the most enjoyable things I've ever done in my life.
0: In the early years of my department, if you played lacrosse or hockey, that was kind of a walk-on to the department. It's always been a big oh. thing in the in the <laughs> Brampton area. Do you still follow lacrosse now? We have a couple of higher-end players on our department.
1: Yeah, I do. We're lucky enough that we have college lacrosse on ESPN2 and
0: ESPNU.
1: So as spring rolls around, I coach now. I coach water polo at the school that I went to, and we have a fair amount of kids that play lacrosse and some of them are good enough that they're getting looked at by colleges. And I'm kind of a roster surfer. I like to see where these kids are coming from now, because back in the day, the college rosters were populated mostly by kids from Western New York, Maryland, Virginia, the odd kid from Denver, and the really, really odd duck from California or Texas. Now, it's all over the place. And what I noticed in the last few years is because of box lacrosse in Canada and how huge it is, the game has changed. The Canadians have sort of revolutionized the game in terms of all the close play and the tight passes into the crease. I mean, the way these attackmen are finishing, it's just otherworldly. And then they're winding up and throwing these huge lasers from, I don't even know how the goalkeepers see it, but A lot of the close play right near the face and a lot of the physical play, I think, comes from a lot of the box laxers from Canada. It's really cool to see. I mean, it was crossing borders back then. It's just, I think Canada had their thing, the U.S. had their thing, and we played each other every so often. And guys would sometimes migrate to go play the box leagues. But now I see a lot of Canadian kids on college rosters, and it's really neat.
0: Watching the sport, you almost have to think that the goalies lost a bet or treated short straws Having to manage that.
1: Oh my God. I mean, and some of these shots are just in the tightest corner. I still love the sport. It's fun to watch. so I still follow
0: it. Who were your guides and mentors growing up?
1: Well, obviously, my parents were great guides and mentors early on, and my brothers and sisters too. I mean, they were older, and so they were in to give me advice. but a lot of them left the house early because they were a lot older. So I would say that my coaches were probably my biggest guides and mentors. I mean, if I were to go back to like what got me ready for the fire service or what got me ready for the real world and some of the knocks that you take, some of the scrapes you take to the knees and the cut open chins and things like that and how to dust yourself off and be tough and get up early and things like that, I'd say that my coaches were the ones that were my biggest influence It's not an easy thing to get up in the morning at 5.15, at 11 or 12 years old. and We don't have a lot of indoor pools here in the Central Coast, and it's still cold. It's not Canada cold, but it's 45 degrees in the morning, especially through the winters here. It's dark, it's breezy, so getting into the pool is tough. Getting up early is tough. And so I'd say my coaches all the way through from my high school water polo coaches, swim coaches to my college coaches in swimming. And then eventually in lacrosse, the coaching staff at Middlebury College was second to none. And they're still there. And they're still great mentors and people that I admire tremendously that I reflect back on. Oh, and our athletic director in high school was an incredible mentor and incredible support. And they're actually ironically tied together in a lot of ways. And so I just kind of reflect back on that and say, all right, well, who do I have to thank at the end of this thing? I think it's those guys.
0: I find it interesting that you listed having a broad vocabulary was encouraged. That's something that's very important, but it's not necessarily with firefighting, something that's used regularly or encouraged or even spoken about. We're more of a head down, get to work kind of culture.
1: I had to hide that when I first came on with CAL FIRE. In fact, a few words that came out of my mouth, people kind of looked like, okay, so this college boy has got soft hands and he's not going to get the work done. And so there was like an immediate bias there. And so I sort of, my first foray into the fire service, I had to learn how to disguise the fact that I'd gone to college and prep school and, because I didn't really... This isn't really a traditional landing spot for the educational path that I was fortunate enough to have from my parents and my grandparents who helped as well. What would have made more sense is to go on to the business world or the medical world or into teaching. And I actually was a teacher, but I had to really hide that. Here I am 23 years later. And now it's okay to really out yourself, because I have a career to reflect back on. And I would hope the guys who maybe are going to listen to this from my department are going to go, yeah, right. But I would hope that I have a reputation (laughs) for at least working hard and having some good experiences under my belt where I can kind of make fun of myself for having a broad vocabulary.
0: And if anything, where it would serve you best is just in the dynamics around the hall and mitigating conflicts and having civil debates and discussions as opposed to it getting heated. I think when you can articulate what you're thinking well, then it definitely keeps things on track.
1: Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think when you can push yourself back from or step back from whatever it is and say, I'm frustrated because, and then we have guys that manage with a stick, and that's universal from coast to coast and across the border and I think everywhere around the world. We have managers that manage with a stick. Sometimes it's important to be really firm and direct and succinct right then and there without feelings being primary consideration. But I also think it's really important to follow up with someone and say, look, I was frustrated because or when we do this situation it's really important that we xyz and articulate that in a way that i think is inviting for your team members our trucks are 4 staffing our engines are three so it's myself an engineer and a firefighter i'm a player coach working alongside them and then giving direction so if i were to have just a very limited way of expressing myself i think After the fact or prior to, I think it's just less inviting for the guys to like, buy in. So I kind of like that approach of like you just said, articulate and kind of run through your full range of what's happening there. At least that's how I like to manage. Some people don't like to manage that. way.
0: Would you agree that when you do need to manage with the stick, so to speak, that it's so rare and that that occurs, that it's actually more impactful? 100%
1: 100% agree. There's times where you need to do it. You know, it's so funny. We've had guys, we'll call them old yeller because it's all they do. Yell, 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 yell. So after a while you get desensitized to that. But when you try to keep an even keel and you try to see eye to eye with your guys and I mean, hey, we're, we're living together right now in California's case, two thirds of our lives because <laughs> we're I don't know if you guys are going through the same mandatory overtime issues that we are, but boy, we're just getting mandoed left, right and center down here right now. There's a, a real shortage of firefighters. And so we're really living a lot of our lives together. So having a civil relationship with your teammates, your guys, your crewmates those times where the stick comes down, yeah, it's very impactful. And I think it really does sort out what requires gravity versus what's just you exerting your authority for no reason. And I think guys like that lose credibility really quickly when they're just banding around their their captain's bars or exerting their authority for no reason because of the title. So it's important to have buy-in and I like working alongside my guys.
0: Yeah. And I think about accountability quite a bit and how best to hold yourself accountable and other people accountable and If you've had the civil discussion X number of times, that's the foundation. And then at some point, there's only so many times you can discuss it and explain it and ask for it in a certain way. I think then it can be not escalated or elevated. Maybe that's the wrong term, but discussed in a different level.
1: I think that's where playing sports comes into play. It's like in the middle of the game, sometimes you have to just say it how it is and lay it out there and then set the example. I think that sort of locker room mentality That game time mentality is important and that intensity to say, like, hey, I'm laying it out here. Where are you right now? I need you to be here. And as you said, if it's one of those situations where you've discussed it or it's come up, I've been really fortunate. I don't know why, but I've had, for the most part, really quality employees that have worked for me. And we just really haven't had a lot of those discussions and when we do they receive feedback so well and they'll also receive negative feedback well if they know like you said every now and then dad gets pissed and it's okay we're gonna all make up and and break bread later on but they're very receptive to that as well and I just am really grateful for them and for the guys that I've gotten to work with because I haven't had to be bossy while being their boss too many times. The expectations are laid out. I guess I'm clear about expectations early on, and I'm clear about what kind of person I want to work with. And so I've been lucky that I've had those types of individuals that are really dedicated.
0: Do you think in general the service at this point is having a hard time finding that balance between the necessity for the two ways of communicating?
1: I just think we're going through a generational shift. Again, my perspective on this is going to be a little bit skewed because in the supervisorial role, we're a player coach. I would say that the less life experience one has, let me approach that question from a different way. I think most people, although we may see a little shift in that because of we're hiring a lot of people now, but I think most people that were coming into the fire service over the last five years were grown-up adults that have had some other life experience and have sort of a preloaded work ethic and I would say that for the most part because there's always that three percent rule, but for the most part the folks that are walking through the door are walking through with a pretty darn good work ethic at least a base work ethic. and so to mentor them along to, step it up more notches or has been, for the most part, an easy process. And when there are signs that that's not the page that that person's on, we have pretty easy measures to sit them down and latitude to sit them down and say, this happened, this happened, this happened, this happened, and this is an example of what we're not going to do. And so what I want to see next tour is ABC. And there's pretty clear framework for that. But I do think the fire service is going through a generational shift now where maybe some of the younger generation is coming through a little bit. I mean, I'm 50 years old. So again, I might sound a little bit old, but some, not all, are coming through with a little bit of sense of entitlement and, uh, oh, I'm going to call in sick and, or I'm going to call in sick and then go on this vacation sort of thing versus what's the right thing to do.
0: You mentioned that the fire service wasn't a typical landing area, given your academic background. So what was your first exposure to the fire service? And then what sparked that? And what was the path towards you applying?
1: When I was a little kid, we grew up inland a little bit at the base of the Santa Cruz Mountains, which is not a particularly distinctive mountain range that people outside of California or even outside of Northern California would have heard of. But It's kind of your typical like arid urban rural interface environment. And back in the 70s, 1970s, it was mostly rural. And we had a house out there. And as would happen in California every summer, we had a pretty significant wildfire within viewing distance of our house. I think in today's world, we would have had a strike team of engines in our neighborhood and probably have been under some sort of organized evacuation. But we sort of, like the rest of the neighborhood, stayed and watched the fire. And we weren't told by the local sheriff to evacuate. So we got to watch from our deck, basically, air tankers all day, uh, helicopters doing water drops, spot drops all day. We saw folks marching in. We saw engine companies going in and out, type three engines, wildland engines, in and out. And I think I was five or six at the time. And I was kind of like an army man kid. Like I was into army men and my dad was older. So he always had some sort of war movie on. So that was captivating. I was real into just kind of things that like most young boys are into. And that just, I thought, oh man, this is amazing. Look at all this effort to get a handle on this fire. And the fire in itself was impressive. A huge column of smoke, huge blow-ups huge flare ups on the side of this mountain. I think there were power lines that eventually exploded, like one of the transformers exploded under the the stress of the heat. And to me, I was wide eyed because I was fascinated by it. So that was like, I was five or six years old when When that went down, and obviously there was also the kindergarten visits to the fire station, the first grade visits to the fire station, and that was amazing as well. It was just really taken in by the equipment, the shiny engine, all the valves, the complements of hose. It just struck me. And then obviously not knowing any better growing up, the movie Backdraft comes out, you think, oh man, that's amazing. That's how it is. Holy (laughs) moly. And obviously, you know... (laughs) We know that's not how it is, but I think it was that exposure. You know, I saw a few structure fires as a kid, and then actually when I was in college at the University of Southern California, I got woken up in the middle of the night by sirens, and then more sirens, and then more sirens. Sirens was not a, a rare thing in our neighborhood. It was actually pretty common, but if you heard multiple sirens, that was kind of rare. And so I woke up and looked out my window. And one block over, there was a huge column and a construction site had gone up right next to an apartment complex. So it extended into the apartment complex. And by the time I ran over there to watch what was going on, and this is at like one in the morning, LA City had their wooden ladders up. They were evacuating people from second and third floor of the apartment and trying to get a handle on the main body of the fire and take care of the extension. It was like a multi-alarm fire. I thought, man, this is one of the coolest things I've ever seen in my life. And it just kind of stayed with me. And then I thought, all right, I finished my college degree. What am I going to do for work? And the time, too, there were those nightmare stories of, oh, yeah, firefighters, there's 10,000 guys that line up for three jobs. And I'm sure the ratios were a lot smaller, but it was highly competitive. Even to get a job with Cal Fire as a seasonal, it was highly competitive. And I really didn't know what I was doing. And I, I thought, all right, I, I've taught for four years. The money is pretty minimal. Uh, unfortunately, it's still sad in our society that teaching is paid so poorly. But I need to go back to graduate school so I can make more money. i had done some interviews where like, having an advanced degree would accelerate my salary a little bit and push me up higher into administration or something like that. And so i said all right i'm gonna go to graduate school for environmental science because i was a biology major but to pay for it i'm gonna do one last shot and see about this fire thing and go to cal fire and that was it i went to a fire academy with a junior college i was captivated by that and hooked and then i was lucky enough to be hired by cal fire and that was it i worked in an area where we were going to fires almost every afternoon. Cal Fire, you work a 96 hour shift and then you get 72 hours off. That's what you did back in the day. We also wore tan and green, (laughs) like the Forest Service. Now they wear all blue, they're a full service fire agency. But back in the day, depending on where you worked, it's primarily rural and urban rural. And I worked in a, a primarily rural area It was hot and windy every afternoon, and it was in an agricultural area with a lot of vineyards that were up against a lot of oak woodland, and it seemed like almost every afternoon we got at least 20, 30 acres. It was what it was. Just the smell of it and the type of work it was, it was really exciting. And that was it. I said, I am not going back to teaching if I don't have to. I'm going to try and get a full-time fire job. So that's a long story about how I kind of got into it but and you know the other thing too is I really missed college sports I I I mean it was like a I actually went through like honest to goodness depression and anxiety when college sports was over with and that sort of community and that camaraderie was over with and the fire service has propped me up and fueled that fire for the last 23 years sort of recapturing that camaraderie it's maybe I'm sort of a meathead in that respect but like I just that sort of environment that team environment was really hard for me to put down right away at 22 23 years old it was really really hard so to be back in that at 28 years old and have the prospect of that being a lifelong career i thought oh man i mean there's no other career for me and then there are guys that were born to be a fireman and they knew it and then there's guys that were like born to be a fireman and they didn't know it and i I think was one of those that just didn't know what I thought I was. But now I look back and I go, there's no other job that I could. Even my son says like, dad, how can you leave this? Well, now my body's getting old and broken. So it's like a little bit easier to think about. But (laughs) he would say often, there is no other job that I could see you in ever. And I thought, yeah, because he sees how much I love going to work. He actually came with me on a ride along. And he sees how much like we love each other and the station and like how much we love going to jobs and just love being around the station and stuff. And, and he's like, this is a pretty good work environment. We'll see if he follows in that path.
0: What was your family's take on you choosing this career path?
1: Pride, but also fear. You know, my mom was like, Oh, please don't get hurt. And my dad was also like, please don't get hurt. But if you do, then you, it's a noble profession. He was really, really proud. He's Pat, he's since passed away. And my brothers and sisters have always showed immense support, immense. obviously, fires out here are national slash international news, but so are everywhere. I mean, you you guys had massive fires, I think in Alberta, what four or five years ago, that were unprecedented. and with the way the climate is going and these fires are always on the news, so, when we get a big fire in California, my brothers and sisters or my mom will text and be like, You're not going to that, are you? And sometimes <laughs> the answer is yeah, yes, I am. <laughs> right. Or I'm already here. It's a mixture, but for the most part. And then my wife and kids are incredibly supportive. They know how much I love it. But my daughter has admitted she's 16. She's admitted to me that yeah, I, I worry about you when you go to work. Like I really do. It stresses me out. And I said I do everything I can to be safe. And I've got really great people around me. I work in a great battalion, incredible personnel around me. So knock on wood, everything turns out okay.
0: You mentioned to me that the process of getting on was hard. Tell me about the learning curve and were you surprised by it?
1: Yeah, I was. I didn't know what I didn't know at all. In fact, it's just a funny anecdote. For my interview for CAL FIRE, I figured it's mostly rural work I'm not going to dress up in a coat and tie. I'm going to dress business casual. And I remember from a verbal standpoint, I kind of reflected back on a lot of my sports as work ethic stuff. And I was a team captain back in high school. And I was able to sort of reflect back on that. And so from a verbal standpoint, I feel like I nailed the interview. But even one of the panelists was like, so you didn't wear a tie. And I guess that's confidence too. And I thought, I I look back on that today and I go, what was I doing? That's <laughs> madness. Like what an idiot. I, I'd, of course you dress up in a coat and tie for a professional interview for the fire service. I mean, just the seriousness of it. I, you know, I kind of was like thinking of Cal Fire more along the lines of, oh, this is forest service. These are a bunch of guys that are gonna go hiking in the woods and digging fire line and lighting a bunch of backfires. And Cal Fire was in a transition uh, in fact, I'm looking out uh, outside the uh, window of my office right now, and I see a Cal Fire station right there. One of my first stations, actually, is a paid call, and the guys are all in blue, and they're cleaning up the front of their station, and they fancy themselves as an, and and it's true. I don't, I shouldn't say fancy themselves. They really are an all-service, all-risk, all-hazard fire department. I just was thrown off by the tan and green and being completely naive, kind of coming from the academic world and coming from a world outside the fire service. I didn't have any fire service mentors saying like, hey, idiot, wear a coat and tie and be 45 minutes on time. And so that learning curve, well, I didn't do myself any favors with my first assignment with Cal Fire. I was showing up to work 10 minutes early, which was like pretty much late. And then I figured, oh yeah, no, I'll do my job and you do yours. And it's like competitive for doing the work. So even for grabbing a broom or for rolling hose, or which is good. But I I had no idea about any of that. It was a culture shock. And I kind of had to take a step back and go, okay, yeah, my parents worked really, really hard to give me my educational opportunities, as did my grandparents help too. But these kids that I was working with didn't even have that. This is it for them. This is their path. Here I come in with my thumbs through my suspenders, like, oh, how's it going, everybody? Let me be part of the team. And it was like, it doesn't work that way. And even making the transition into the municipal fire service, my first jobs were up in the Seattle metro area with what is now called Puget Sound Fire and then Tacoma Fire, just really learning in a hurry to be a person that could wrench on something or know the mechanical aspects of the job. That was not, I didn't grow up wrenching on cars. I wasn't soft by any means, I don't think, but I just didn't grow up underneath and sticking my head into machinery and pulling it apart. I didn't know that. And so that was a lot of boxes of donuts to the mechanics. And how does this work? What does this do? A lot of watching stuff online, learning that aspect of the job, because during my probationary years up in the Pacific Northwest in Washington State, that was important. It was really important learning about the hands-on aspect of the job. I didn't grow up pounding nails, so the construction aspect. So learning that and sort of being willing to look a little bit silly right off the bat. And so that was probably... The hardest learning curve. The written tests were no problem for me in probation, but it was looking at the panel of a fire engine, looking at the engineer's panel and not looking at it like it's the damn space shuttle and with all the lights and valves and stuff. And they're like, oh, okay, I have to learn this and learn the nuances of this. And so that was probably the steepest learning curve. It took all of about a half a summer to learn that if the shift starts at eight, get there at seven. The rest of that stuff came at a price. It was hard work, really hard work.
0: You got drawn in partly because of the physicality and your upbringing of participating in sports, but you wrote to me about the endurance portion, physical agility. You also wrote to me about selflessness and being humble. So maybe you can expand on those for me.
1: I, as I said, grew up a swimmer and pretty much gravitated into becoming a distance swimmer, which is just prolonged pain. There's a, a portion, I can draw a direct line between some of the swim sets that I did in high school and college that were miles long in some cases, and just physical pain and throwing up and things that are associated with that, and some of the stuff, the reps that we're doing on the drill ground, where You're like, oh, I recognize this. This is the point where I turn that pain off. This is a game that I play with myself. We're going to turn that pain off. We're going to forget the fact that it's 105 degrees on the drill ground, plus we're wearing turnouts in SCBAs. Oh, I get it. Okay. This is the part where you say, I don't feel any pain. And it's just a feeling. So that part, I was happy to have that in my toolbox. And then obviously, the aerobic capacity that comes along with that. And I still pride myself on that. For me, I wasn't the explosive football player. So the first five minutes of a fire is like a sprint. And I'm definitely suffering the hardest in the first five minutes because I'm really at that sprint pace. Once my body is warmed up, I can overhaul until the chief says stop. And you can see on hot days, especially the football players, the bigger mass guys are gassed. It's just a physiological fact. And that's okay. I mean, that's where you need the big guys to crash through the doors and to pull the body out to hand it through the window or rearrange the bedroom or or whatever it is but i was lucky enough and i still feel a sense of pride that i have the physical endurance to sort of go the distance and then of, of course there's the wildland component too we're not fighting fire from our engines most of the time in wildland we're extending hose lays from a parking area sometimes miles. It's really funny too, with COVID, a lot of the hand crews, especially a lot of the prison crews have been put on ice because of a lot of the COVID restrictions in the state of California. So there weren't a lot of hand crews. So the last couple summers where we've had fires, you get these guys on these city engines, type one engines, they'll say, okay, you're going to park at this roadhead right here and then tool up and pack your lunch. And we're going in two and a half miles. We're going to marry up with this forest service crew at the end of this hose lay and guys are looking at each other like this is a type one strike team <laughs> and i'm like <laughs> yep <"Yeah>, too bad <laughs> so so that kind of stuff i really enjoy i i really have enjoyed that from that standpoint the team aspect the team dynamics and especially now i get it from a different perspective being a coach a water polo coach which is like therapy for me i i, I love coaching and so you see kids that are in various stages of their learning about what it means to be a really good teammate and that selflessness. And so it's like, yeah, you want to be the team captain because it says team captain on your resume or for college or whatever. But if practice starts at 545, are you willing to show up when nobody's looking at 530 or 515 and start pulling all the covers off of the pool? You have to get up a half an hour earlier. Are you going to do that? Are you going to be the last one on the pool deck at 7 30 at night? That sort of work ethic applies to the fire service, but it applies to wherever those kids are going to go off and do their job. And I would say that I had a good work ethic in that I could work hard during practices in my sports days, but I was missing that thing that I think fire kids had right off the bat that they got mentored on, which is like, no, 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 you're Got to show up an hour early. You got to drive your neighborhood. So it was all the extras that go into being a good teammate in the fire service. It's driving your area. It's not leaving something for the oncoming shift. It's wiping down the microwave. It's cleaning up your bathroom for the oncoming captain. All these other little things that I would say, like a college kid like myself, was a little bit more entitled and need to be smacked around a little bit. And I did get that smacking around, thankfully, to where I really learned yeah, you don't just be the hardest worker on the field. It's all the stuff off the field as well. There are guys that do that, that I admire and respect that do that a lot better than I do. And I'm constantly self-reflecting. Did I do that as well as I could today? Hmm. I'm looking back at every 48 hours and just all the, I'm starting to realize I have guys that are 20 years my younger that could be, did I set the best example for them today? Oh no, I could have done that better. Oh, I could have Maybe not lost my temper on the third call after midnight or been short with that patient because they called us for the fourth time in a month for knee pain. It's just things like that. And I think what that does is it just, it makes you a better teammate because then you're willing to be like, all right, what's the mission? I would say also Alan Brunicini was a real mentor for me in the fire service. I was fortunate enough through a gentleman, retired battalion chief named Kevin Conant from the San Jose Fire Department incredible mentor to me from a command standpoint, from a fire service standpoint, from a culture standpoint, from a life standpoint. And he was kind enough to introduce me to Alan Brunicini. And so I got to know Alan Brunicini over the course of a couple years and his sons. And I really loved what he had to say. He would talk about M, the letter M, as in Mary or Mike, M-centered. What is the mission? What is the mission? Is the mission you? No. The mission's not you. So what can you do to help the mission? And I just, all of his stuff on customer service, maybe some people say that's Kool-Aid. I drink the Kool-Aid through the biggest beer jug you could think of. I really drink that customer service Kool-Aid. Although I will say you start to take sleep away and my customer service sometimes flies out the window and it's my guys do a really good job of checking me on that one.
0: Yeah, there's way more opportunities to learn and prove yourself as a firefighter, not on calls, because that's the majority of your time versus actually proving yourself on a call around the fire ground.
1: Yeah, 100%. We're on a rescue company. We cross-staff an engine in a rescue, and so perpetually anxious about different disciplines on the rescue that where it's been a while and there's been rust, and you kind of have to humble yourself and be selfless during the training aspect and you have to do that 10 times over to be good during an actual incident because like you said the incidents are rare our agency goes to a fair amount of working fires per month and we don't do a whole lot of high risk low frequency high angle rescues or confined space rescues i don't know a department that's doing that every day i know many departments that are doing it more than us but Those are the things where it's like, all right, well, going to have to polish off the rust and we're going to look a little silly here, but let's get these ropes up in the air and make sure that we get this right. And then talk about it afterwards. We did that the other day with the truck company and, and it's a relatively new crew in that we haven't worked together yet. So we don't know each other's nuances. And so we kind of fumbled around a little bit and there were a few tense moments and we're like, okay, all right, now we're on the same sheet of music. And later on that night at three in the morning, we had a, a pretty solid extrication with that same truck company and it went flawless. We weren't high-fiving externally because that was kind of like a bad look on the fire ground, but we were certainly enjoying the fact that we all worked seamlessly together. And it's because we kind of did stumble a little bit earlier in the day during training and just kind of knocked the rust off and learned each other's little uh, nuances and stuff. And that's that was really important.
0: What was your recruit experience like?
1: good for the most part. I had a baby during, or I didn't have a baby. My wife had a baby during (laughs) my probation at the Tacoma fire department. And that really derailed me for like a week or two where it was so funny. The way that they grade you during that process is with black ink or red ink. Black ink is good. Red ink is bad. So the idea was be all black, be all black have all black ink on your weekly evaluations. In the first nine weeks of the academy, all black. And I would say that my recruit experience at Puget Sound Fire prior to that was a really good preparation for that. As soon as my kid came into the world, it was chaos. There was so much red ink, and to the point where I got got sat down, and was like, dude, is everything okay? And I didn't really expand into like home life and how, I mean, they knew that we had a kid. I didn't really expand into what a strain that was. And so I think I graduated, I was at the very top of my class for those first nine weeks. I think I graduated at the bottom of my class during probationary graduation, like barely graduated. And then my probationary experience during that time at first was a little rocky because my self-confidence was like out the window. It's like leading the Super Bowl by three touchdowns and then losing. So you're like, am I even worthy to be here? I, I, shouldn't, even, I shouldn't even be here. I'm, I, I hope that leave of absence is, is okay. I'm going back. I shouldn't even be here. And just like kind of working through that and then having a couple light bulbs go on and getting lucky, having a couple calls where it's like people who didn't know me from that experience, like, oh yeah, I did okay. And then you had to do three tests during your time out on the line. You did four months on a truck, you did a a truck test. You did four months on an engine, you did an engine test. You did three months bouncing around and then you did a comprehensive test. And fortunately, I was ready for all three of those tests. They were not written. They were all manipulative. They were three hours, four hours long. And I did really, really well. And it felt really good at the end of that for a training lieutenant who I really had tremendous respect for, but who also I think was about to fire me at the end of the of my probation. I said, you went from first to absolute worst to first again. And I was like, oh. Well, I mean, I go you rank us he's like no but you're the guy that you were at the very beginning of the academy. I was like, "Well, yeah, I know. I we had a baby and there was just a lot of chaos, uh, some health issues with that and my wife was having a hard time and he's like, "Why didn't you say something?" I'm like, "I I don't know. I just I don't know, man. I didn't know how to express it. I was just trying to I just wanted this job. I did not want to fail my son or fail my family and so but it definitely was an experience. And you asked a question about humility. I would say that that experience humbled me tremendously and made me grateful for I'd never worked so hard to keep a job. It was really to kind of hit the bottom, to scrape the bottom and then work your way back up made me really grateful for the job. And and I, I freely share that failure experience because I think especially when I see like polo players that I'm coaching, like high school players or probationary firefighters, they are scared to say, I don't know, or I don't know how to do this. And they're scared to fail. They wanna look cool. They wanna look like they're capable of doing the job. And sometimes, like I've had fires where we failed. We failed to find the fire. You do it for 23 years, you're not, it's not gonna be roses. Um, You're just not, it's just not. I'm fortunate and I feel grateful that I've gotten to go to a lot of fires. But they haven't all gone well. That's just the nature of the beast, right? You pull back, you learn from it. And one of the biggest pieces of wisdom that I was taught early on from, I don't know how many different lieutenants and captains is, it's not necessarily how you execute, it's how you recover. Because things are going to go sideways on the fire ground. They just are on the emergency ground. It just, it's, that's just a given. That's the nature of emergency work. You don't just light the pallets in the Bravo Charlie corner of the house and then crawl in under the smoke, darken it down and back out. Like That's not how that goes. It's totally different. Every emergency is totally different. So there's going to be times where just things did not go according to plan. I'm grateful for the times that they do, but boy, oh boy, (laughs) they're few and far between.
0: Reflecting back on how you chose to go through that hard time in probation and recruit class, if you could go back and do it differently and reach out for support and be more vocal about it, would you do that? Would you say to people now, if they're going through that same situation, should they handle it differently?
1: You still got to roll your sleeves up and do the work. And you still have to do the prep work to do the work. Like there's no way around that. But if you can reach out to a classmate, Some academies have like a liaison of like they're an officer or they're a member of the department that's sort of like a sounding board for a recruit, like in a safe space to say anything, like how do I do that better or blah, or can you find out why I failed that exercise or whatever it is. And you have to have the courage and the humility to say, I don't know how to do this. I failed this test three times and I don't know how to do it. It wasn't necessarily that I was failing tests. It was just that the performance was just like, barely viable for like that two-week period, barely passable, a lot of needs improvement, needs improvement. And it's like, there was a part of me that, yeah, wishes that I had done it different because I was like, I didn't feel like I needed improvement on that. And so to like, say like, I know I failed that, what do I do? Or where do I need improvement? And just to ask those deeper questions and reach out, I would say reach out in any direction you can and do it early and do it often. And even if you're not in a situation where things are not going well at home or you're not failing, maybe you're succeeding, you should still reach out and which I do, I feel like things have gone fairly successful over the last 23 years, but I still had a conversation two days ago on our way into shift with a captain that's at a neighboring station. And I just said, hey, dude, anytime you wanna give me feedback about how I did on this fire or how I did on on that fire, I really want it. I really need it. And he said equally, I need it. I don't want to walk around. You hear these stories about these guys that think that they had a great career and then people are behind their back. like, "Oh, that guy's an idiot. I think that's my biggest fear. I actively seek out feedback from my most trusted friends and people that I admire who are fellow captains or BCs or even my engineer. It's like, hey, dude, I love him. He just promoted. We just got him promoted to captain. I'm super proud of him but let's do a little exit interview. How's it going? How am I doing? How do we do on that fire? Do you get clear communication? Do you get clear direction? Anything you'd like to see different? Speak your mind right now. It's really interesting, because when I had that conversation with that captain, we had a fire that night, a department fire. And so it was just so funny. It's like, hey, we talked about this. I just think it's important to just reach out, to answer your question, reach
0: out. What was your journey to wanting to promote to captain?
1: I like the opportunity to lead by example. I really had a lot of leaders and mentors in my upbringing, in sports and in school, and they were incredible leaders. And I kind of wanted to emulate that. Some of that journey was by happenstance to becoming a captain where I had early on was assigned really good captains and lieutenants coming up through Puget Sound Fire and through Tacoma Fire. And even in CAL FIRE, I had some great captains that were like, the guys that I really liked were, and gals that I really liked were easy to talk to. They were direct in their leadership. They were direct in their feedback. They were motivated, but then also gave you space to like decompress. And so it kept the job fun without making it trivial, if that makes sense. The job is a very, 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 very serious job. And our own department has had line of duty deaths. I don't know if Brampton has or not, or if your department has had line of duty deaths or neighboring departments, but it's a serious business. And there's still a time to decompress and keep it fun. I still believe that it is a firehouse. We live together. We know about each other's lives. We help each other in each other's lives in and out of the fire station. I wanted to have the opportunity to create an environment like that where the folks that hopefully worked for me would turn out better than me and that I would try and give them the platform to do that and that I would create an environment where they could thrive professionally and also feel like they could really grow. And so that's what motivated me to become a captain. I also felt like I became a student of the game in short order And I put a lot of time into that in terms of making tactical calls and strategic calls. And I have confidence that I can make the right call strategically and tactically and task-wise on emergency incidents. And so I wanted the opportunity to be in the driver's seat to to make those calls as well. And so just became a lot of emulating and and being mentored by uh, guys around me. I was pretty reluctant to take the captain's test. I had actually a captain that I love. And respect his name is, he's retired uh, his name's rick stratton and i was driving for him and i was happy as a driver i just kind of had hit this place where i was just happy i was not a busy engine company we were going to fires and i was happy in that role and he said you're taking the captain's test i was like no way dude not yet i'm not ready yeah you're taking it the department needs you to take the captain's test i was like that ha 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 thank you that's funny I'm not doing it. And he said, no, I'm giving you a direct order. You need to take the captain's test. And he just browbeat me into submission to take the test. And I ended up pretty high on the list on that test. And I'm grateful that he did it because I was sort of reluctant as much as I think I had been preparing for it. I just wanted a little bit more time. And he said, no, the time is now. You got to go. And that's the same with my engineer. I browbeat him for two years. You have to take the test. You have to take the test. And I knew he was going to come out. At the top of the list he came out number two and he's been ready and he's just a tremendous individual and he's going to be an excellent fire officer and so when you recognize it you have to point those guys out and give them a nudge and say hey and offer your mentorship and some will take you up on it
0: you mentioned a specific battalion chief that came into the bay one night and sort of laid it on the line for you what did he say to you
1: that was jim scott oh my god like one of the nicest and best chiefs I had. And I've been fortunate enough to have some really good battalion chiefs. I feel like he represented the face of six chiefs that I've worked for prior to that experience and post that experience. It's like the good ones really stand out is what I'm trying to say. And what he did basically, we were working on the engine panel that night going over different quiz questions with my lieutenant and my driver. And he walked in and he was just like, hey, newly promoted. He goes, I'm just stopping by to say hi. I understand we have a probationary here. What I really hope for you is that you recognize what a great position you're in and what a great opportunity this is. And I'm going to do everything I can to help you be successful. And I thought, oh my God. All right, here's somebody that's like not looking to fire me. Because we had a pretty high attrition rate. Probation was no joke. A quarter of the class from being hired to the end of probation, about a quarter of the class was gone. And so you feared for that. Everybody did. Everybody lived under that fear. And he was just like, look, I I want you to be successful. I want you to learn when you're executing the job as firefighter or when you're taking your test to operate the pump. I want you to learn to be an athlete in motion. And he said those words verbatim. And that like turned the light bulb on. That's when it was like, oh, I get it now. At first, it was sort of like all these disparate components that I was like trying to put together. And he kind of gamified the whole context. I was like, oh, no, I recognize this part. This is me getting to be the athlete that I was, but in an occupational context, I get it. Okay. And so here's a guy that wanted to provide as many training opportunities as we could ask for. His office was down the hall from our dorm because it was a big station. It was a battalion, medic, truck and engine. And the battalion had a driver too. So we were big super fun lively station and he's like i'm right down the hall if you have any questions about pump operations about i mean from the nitty-gritty to like the bigger concepts so I was like oh man all right obviously has been getting out there that i've been showing up off the job and on the job and he basically was saying like if you show up and you want to work i'm there for you i thought that that informed the rest of my career I'd say the other guy that I mentioned, the retired battalion chief from San Jose, Kevin Conant, all about, like, sort of was the first one to sort of introduce me to the concept of servant leadership. I mean, all these BCs prior to him, like Jim Scott and Paul Wright and other guys that I worked for that I really loved working for, were servant leaders, which just never said those words. And so they talked about servant leadership and stewardship. And I thought, oh man, okay, that's how, when you take a genuine interest in your in your guy's success, not a fake one, but like a genuine interest. You want your guy to be better than you. That's when like the job gets really fun, and that's when things start to really come together. And I think that's when things start to coalesce as well with regard to safety. Because when you're personally invested in someone being really good, you have to perform too. Like you have to roll your sleeves up and show up and all that stuff. And so I think that statement, that first statement when he walked into the ape and said that, it was really dramatic and powerful. I thought, oh, man, this guy is like willing to take his time to invest in me. I'm just a probie that is completely expendable. There's a whole other class that they're hiring, and they'll fill these vacant spots, but like, he's willing to invest in someone that's willing to put in the effort. I better not screw this up. I almost said a different word, but um, I better not. I guess that just made a real impact on me.
0: And when did you get into wanting to make progressive changes in the fire service? And what's your experience of that been?
1: I'd say that I kind of have a natural propensity towards improvement. I think a lot of firefighters do. I think that we are all mostly on that spectrum of type A personalities. Some of us are less type A than others. But when you are, you think that you have the best idea in the room. I think the guys that played team sports through high school also know how to play well with others and listen to everybody else's ideas and then work out a strategy. I think you learn in the team environment that you better check your ego out the door or you're going to get spanked. One of my lieutenants at Puget Sound Fire, which was then Kent Fire Department, Rick Cox, was teaching us about the new passport accountability system. And I think that was one of the moments where he was just like such an effective instructor about that and pretty highly respected truck captain or truck lieutenant as well. I think that's kind of when I wanted to, one of the first moments was like, cool, I would like to be involved in this. And I think I got involved in a variety of different committees here and there for progressive change. But I would say that the biggest thing I've done on a formal basis is the tablet command piece in terms of bringing practicable, practical technology to the fire service that doesn't get in the way of being aggressive. I would say probably three years in, I wanted to be involved in change and was on, like I said, different committees for that change, whether it was like union stuff or it was operational stuff. And then I was forced into the training division in my first few years as a captain. The lowest seniority captains have to do a stint in the training division. I was kind of thrust into that change model. But it's fun. Another really respected uh, retired deputy chief from the Northwest, a guy named Eric Tomlinson, really taught me about the value of a, a solid change model. And it really takes into account the psychology of the rank and file and the guys on the floor that are actually doing the work because a lot of times and I'm sure you've been involved in this as well where you get change forced on you and forced from the top down and it's like what are we supposed to do with this this is not how we've been operating and it's like well it's the newest shiniest thing so get used to it boys and so it creates a gap right and so getting that buy in and the angle of approach for that buy in hey we're going to adopt these new nozzles they have a different gallonage flow materials are getting hotter they're burning faster. These guys got burned over in whatever town or whatever city, Canada or USA, two weeks ago. And it was because they had several petrochemical fuels, furniture, and such. And so we're going to adopt these new nozzles. We're adopting this new fire attack technique. The training starts next month. You got to walk these guys into this. You can't just like hit them in the face with a pie. It should be hanging over my door. I need my guys way more than they need me. <laughs> <laughs> and so they have the ability to sabotage any sort of progressive change. Even if it's the best thing since sliced bread, they have to buy in. They have to take ownership. And sometimes they're going to grumble all the way to the finish line and then be like, well, yeah, you guys are probably right. But and, you, and sometimes you have to just believe in that mission. But you create a lot less friction for yourself when you can get that actual buy-in and, and just be willing to have those conversations to implement that change. And I would say... Tablet Command has been a real journey, and experiment. It's been a tremendous observation from as we visit department to department and deal with a lot of the same personalities that we're working with on our own floor, but are just wearing a different uniform. And so some of it's really funny to see how the different reactions to those changes.
0: Yeah, I feel like the fire service is the last holdout on a lot of fronts very often. (laughs) Totally, And it's tough because there are some quote unquote older school things that we need to keep doing, whether it's a specific piece of equipment or the way that we do business. And even on fire attack methods, a lot of the current research now is proving that some of the older school ways of doing things were right all along. So it's good that we keep reassessing and tearing things apart and rebuilding them and seeing the things that we need to keep and the things we need to get rid of. But one of the last holdouts is definitely with technology. There's a lot of stuff in the service that's still pen and paper. There's this marriage or intersection or need to integrate older school mentalities and better ways of doing business with technology. Especially with fire service being generational and technology is just improving at such a rapid rate now, it's really hard to get on top of and keep on top of. And technology has always been that latest, greatest, shiniest gadget that is going to solve all your problems and a number of things have been very sore disappointments and and some of things are great. So it must be really hard. It must have been really hard still to try and bring something technology wise onto the fire ground and actually show that this is an area that we can do business better. So you've mentioned tablet command a few times now. So talk me through what drove you to wanting to specifically sort of go all eggs in one basket on that and improve incident command and and then how that process has been for you.
1: What I'll say really quickly is like, it's a negotiation, right? When we walk through the door, basically, what the guys on the floor are saying are don't take away my aggressive interior attack because we're just proving that that's the way to do it. And don't take away my topside ventilation. Essentially, don't take away the way that we do business. In that negotiation, we're saying you are absolutely going to retain the way that you do business. This is, this has one thing does not have to do with the other. From the accountability standpoint, what's happening in the analog world too often is we're losing track of our personnel on the fire ground or we're playing catch up in that information. And so what had been happening, that sets off a chain of events in terms of communications and organization that you either have a whole lot of independent action going on Because the command structure is playing catch up with the information. And then there's sort of a sorting out of what independent action is happening. And then an organization of that into the incident command structure. We sought with Tablet Command to remove that fog of war and remove a lot of that confusion. And just provide real-time information for what's happening on the fire right now. And it's really simple. It's who's responding to that fire right now. And, and then how can you organize them into an incident structure? So we had two line of duty deaths back in 2007, and there were a big chain of events that led to that. There's no one thing led to another. There was not gross negligence. It, what came in as a fire alarm and a single engine response turned into a structure fire with two elderly people trapped and guys going into rescue mode and hanging themselves out there for a while before everyone could play catch up. And the reports that ensued afterwards were that, hey, you guys got some huge gaps in your incident command structure. Myself and the co founder, Will Pigeon, started taking a hard look at the incident command structure and what that process looked like. And we're both really familiar with tactical worksheets and the incident command system. We're both California firefighters, so we're falling into the incident command system weekly with wildland fires. Also being sort of students of Brunicini, the incident command system is even happening on a single unit response. It's just a lot smaller. And so the physical act of grabbing a piece of paper off of a printer with units assigned, which now is old information, but it's it's in dried ink, and then flipping through a map book and looking at an analog pre-plan, and then pulling out a tactical worksheet and opening up the, the doors of the buggy and pulling out a dry erase pen and all that stuff was taking time and taking the incident commander's attention away from managing the incident. And coming from a large department, know just as well as I do that if you're on a medical and that medical is pretty low level and you have the ambulance right there and you get a structure fire in your first do, second do, third do, fourth do, seventh do, you're gonna try and jump the fire and you're going to try and hand that medical off but your engine company and the names of your personnel are not going to appear on that piece of paper that was printed out three minutes ago when that fire came out nor is that communication guaranteed to go through over the radio if someone's doing a size up and so what we sought to do is just create a clear common operating picture for everyone responding and give the incident commander all of their resources segmented by alarms, first alarm, second alarm, third alarm in real time and put their maps and their drop-down tactical worksheets on one large tablet platform. I mean, they're doing it anyway. They're doing it with pencil and paper. They're grabbing things from a bunch of different files and folders. So why not just have that on a tablet so they can look up and see what the fire dynamics are actually doing Look at the hose lines in the building, do a 360, and hold their command board in their hand while they're doing it. And so that's what the original idea was. And it morphed into well, let's make this into a mobile data computer mounted on the engine as well, so that guys can get richer maps and satellite views and figure out escape routes and exit points and look at who's responding and look over the shoulder of the incident commander as they're managing the tactical worksheet, if maybe they're on the second alarm or they're the fifth unit on the first alarm. They can get a pretty up-to-date satellite view of the backyard of this. Oh, it's a hoarder's house. Okay, that's a huge watch out. So what we wanted to do, because guys were doing it anyway, they were doing it on their iPhones. They were just bringing their own tools to work and they were coming up with different workarounds. I'm sure you had some back in the day as well, or things that you use in your current fire department that are not necessarily assigned to you by your department. That's sort of the origin story.
0: And you touched on the two line of duty deaths you had. And then in our back and forth prior to recording, I asked you if you used NIOSH reports at all and other mediums to research the incidents where poor incident command was a factor in the outcome. So maybe just expand on that for me.
1: The line of duty deaths are talked about across the board, I'm sure. Any line of duty death that happens in Canada, or United States, or even abroad, overseas, are things that you guys are talking about at least around the round table over coffee at the beginning of a duty day. We have a training platform that we have to do so many hours per month to where our training captains will post NIOSH reports or they'll post a blue sheet or a green sheet or whatever sheet ensues from that line of duty death. And then these are just like really stark reminders, not only relating to the person on a property, hey, a 50 year old captain with two kids at home, that part but also the they were walking into a structure fire that initially came in as a fire alarm oh okay that's a watch out and so you start to read these things and they're just dark reminders of how things can really bite you and sometimes it's a reminder of the corners that you're cutting too from a safety standpoint responded to the report of a car fire so guy didn't have his flash hood on turned out it was a car in a structure guy made interior attack, got his ears burned up, whatever it is. Those reports are really impactful. When we started drawing the nexus between bad information and line of duty deaths, we started really digging into the NIOSH-5, which is something that Anthony Castros, who was a retired battalion chief from Sacramento Metro, I became familiar with that term from him, the NIOSH-5. Those were the five causal factors leading up to line of duty deaths. And so then you start to cross-reference these NIOSH reports, and lack of command structure comes up a lot. And it came up a lot in our own. I think there were one hundred and fifteen recommendations in our own NIOSH report, and I think twenty three to thirty of those had to do with either communications or incident command. And then, of course, there's the ancillary aspects of that of like not deploying standard operating procedures for an incident command procedure. So in our department, we used to have a joke of like, oh yeah, 13 battalion chiefs, 13 different ways of commanding a fire. So we thought, man, what are these reports saying to us? Standardization, standardization, standardizations. And there's a way to employ standardization without taking away someone's individualism or taking away a department's individual identity or how they do business. We don't want Brampton to standardize with Contra Costa County. We just want Brampton to be standardized from top to bottom. We want Contra Costa to be standardized from east to west and north to south. So we were introducing a platform that would allow people to at least look at a standard operating picture and know, stay off the radio and stop calling, asking for a roll call of resources because it's right there in front of them. Just that simple task right there. And then having an incident worksheet that was standard as well. The NIOSH reports really drove us towards that and they've been sort of a referential. When we run up against someone that points at their head and says, well, I've got my tactical worksheet right up here for a first alarm anyway. And you say, all right, man, but respectfully, we get that. I'm not trying to tell you how to do your business, but what do the NIOSH reports say? and it's unavoidable really right it's happening in replicated fashion all over our two great nations so what can we do that's not going to interrupt the way that you do business or your sense of traditionalism that can improve your safety and your situational awareness and we think that tablet command is really a huge step in that direction
0: and you also mentioned the benefit of youtube And I'm sure I've mentioned this before in other talks where an older school, maybe way of dialoguing around the kitchen table was this tactic because of this and this fire I was at. And now with technology, we can actually watch real fires. And it sort of takes that. Here's my opinion off the table, because you can say certain things are going to work, but we can actually watch them happen now and learn from them. So how has that informed this project and also how you run business in your crew?
1: I could have a fire across the street right now as a civilian or as a a firefighter, film it, put it on YouTube, and probably get access to the waveform of the radio communications ASAP, and different departments do a really good job of putting that out there. You don't experience a fire personally every shift, you just don't, but you benefit from the experience of others, and by seeing that in a visual fashion and hearing the audio, and hearing things that more often than not, like hearing things go by the numbers on YouTube, aspiring to do that. Hey, is our rescue procedures, are our rescue procedures dialed in in terms of passing command to the next in officer so I can go in for a rescue? We should probably work on that. This department did it really well on this video. Do you guys hear that? So the only danger I'll just say as a caveat is like, and I think most good folks are not doing this, but substituting that for the only training that you do. You can't, but it's an an amazing, and I know you know, I mean like, it's an amazing tool. And I know there's pushback online out there about YouTube firefighters, but to me the benefits outweigh any sort of danger of just relying on that. It's amazing how quickly we can get fire footage in the palm of your hand or on your day room television right now we could not do that when i came on 23 years ago you had to rely on like a news report and then some like you remember like some crappy gritty vhs tape that got passed around 10 times i'd like taped over everyone loves raymond because somebody taped the news story of whatever fire happened in whatever building and it was just all news footage and now guys with helmet cams And all that stuff, you can see interior conditions. It's fantastic. But again, what it does is it'll emphasize the need for incident command and the need for a standardized incident command platform. And our argument is the sooner you adopt that standardized platform, I mean, you make it your own. You customize it for your culture, for your department, the way, your terminology, all of that. But once you kind of have a standard agreement across your department, all that other stuff, it's a lot easier. Now you're freer to like make that interior push because your BC knows exactly where you are and who's on your rig. You're freer to make that primary search upstairs on the upper floor or lower floors. You're free to put that whole topside and because everyone knows where everybody is. It's like it takes that out of the equation so that you can focus on fire conditions. So mm-hmm. I do. I love YouTube. We use it. I'd say almost every tour, whether we're looking at a high-angle rescue or some sort of rescue or some fire conditions. Sometimes you see YouTube, you look at fire conditions that look impossible. It's like, oh man, they attacked that. Okay, that's doable. Let's go to fire school. We have a, a fire school uh, where we can light a bunch of conics boxes on fire and let's try and replicate those conditions. So yeah, it's, a, it's an amazing tool.
0: Yeah, and it also makes the aggressive educated, aggressive tactics that you want to take action on safer. 100%. How have you navigated the support and pushback?
1: We've gathered our support in sort of this portfolio of referential customers. Some of the first interactions we had is, well, that iPad's not going to put the fire out. Well, of course it's not. If people don't know who we are, they're wondering, hey, are you a software salesman? We're like, no, we're working firefighters. We've Our CEO did 20 plus years in the fire service in a very aggressive fire department. I'm currently working in a fire department I've been on for 23 years. Our CTO was on for 20 years. So just like if you were to walk through the bay doors of the Boston Fire Department and say, hey, guys, I'm a Canadian firefighter. Oh, come on in. You get the the barriers drop when you are of the cloth, so to speak. That enables us to have conversations with prospective customers that then become customers. And it's always fun to have customers that really push back at first. In fact, our current CEO fancies himself as a grisly old truck captain. And when I walked in, another BC introduced me to him and said, if this guy passes off on it, then it's likely that we'll do this for this fire department. And so in my initial visit, the younger BC was like, it's really cool and I'm into it, but we got to pass the Van test. His name is Van. I said, okay. And I think Van was like throwing his leg over his Harley Davidson going off duty and was like anxious to, to like rev his bike as I was like giving him the, <laughs> the, the, the 30 second pitch. He's like, yeah, it's probably not going to be a good fit for us, but like if I happen to be here next tour and you think you want to come back here maybe we'll take a look and I think he rode away on his motorcycle and I was and uh, I kind of looked at this other guy he goes that's kind of how he is just be persistent I said okay so when can I come back he said why don't you come back in two weeks so I walked in and he's basically like you again I said yep he goes okay you think you can keep up with an incident with that thing because these incidents are pretty hot here I go hey you know I, I I was at a working fire like a day ago so I'm reasonably familiar with it. I'm trying to be respectful and humble and not play the the measuring contest, so to speak. And so he played some audio. He goes, I want you to to build an incident with this audio. Right now, I'm gonna watch over your shoulder. I was like, okay, bring it on. So he played it, I kept up. We have this documented in a documentary, so this is all true. And that was the moment that won him over. His name's Van Rivera, he's our current CEO. His other battalion chief, his counterpart, Matt Niram, who's a current battalion chief at the Stockton Fire Department, who sadly just had a, a really unfortunate line of duty death, not fire related. I mean, fire related, but not anything tactically related. It was just a really unfortunate one off. They really then took the reins and pushed this through their operational structure. A lot of the other pushback comes from on the technical end. So you I've had fire chiefs that have literally and again, this is dead true fire chiefs that have called me saying, I am holding a credit card in my hand right now. I want tablet command. And I'm like, chief, I want to give you tablet command so badly, but we have to get buy-in from your IT department to do the install. And that's where a lot of the pushback can really put a lot of friction into the sales process. Fortunately, our dev group, again, composed of some firefighters, former firefighters, that are also technically really literate. Our CTO, in particular, Will Pigeon, is just, he's like a, a unicorn. You know, the guy can re- literally repel out of a helicopter and snag you off the side of a building, but he can also program tablet command to marry up with your CAD system. I don't know, maybe you should have been a seal in his, in his next life or something, you know, with that. but. Uh, Anyway, he has now a set of standard procedures and documentation and really good personnel under him and his dev group that can overcome some of those friction stories with the folks in IT that can push back. The other pushback we have is kind of out there in the business world. We've got CAD companies that will sometimes erect walls of price to make integration a little bit of an obstacle for their customers because I don't want to start any wars here, but they might think that they have a product that can compete with ours in terms of a command platform and an interface. And you talk to our customers and I I won't mention them here because it's not a commercial, but we have very large metropolitan customers in in the United States and there's just no comparison. And you show me a, a CAD company that has an incident command platform that guys are using, out there, like real fire departments that are going to real fires using, and I will buy a steak dinner because I don't think it's happening by and large. They're either just sticking with pencil and paper tactical worksheets, which work, or they're going with tablet commands. So when our would-be customers raise questions, we point them to our referential customers, and we generally point them to our customers that pushed back the hardest, either from a tactical standpoint or technology standpoint.
0: Above and beyond knowing that you have something that belongs on the fire ground and in firefighters' and IC's hands, you mentioned that you really enjoy the process of discussing firefighting with these other departments with services and having a shot at changing their minds because you know you're changing their mind towards something that's actually beneficial. Talk to me about why you enjoy that process, just the process of the discussion and changing minds, steel manning, I guess, their side, asking deeper questions, finding out more where they're coming from and having patience. So maybe walk me through why that's an enjoyable experience for you.
1: So, we go to San Francisco Fire, and there is a very experienced, very salty division chief named Tom Saragusa, who he's just got a ton of experience and he's really well spoken. He's a fire service mentor. I mean, he's a guy that sort of leaned on over the years just as a person for advice and just really solid, salt of the earth chief officer at a large fire department that does a lot of activity. So, we had an early version of this platform. And we said, if we go to San Francisco and we can show this guy this technology, at least we'll figure out if we're wasting our time. I don't wanna waste any more time on this. If a guy like Tom Saragusa says, this is a waste of time and I would never use this. So we walked in and he's like, what are you guys, a couple propeller heads? We said, no, no, we're firefighters across the bay. We work for Contra Costa County Fire. He's like, okay sure, have a seat. He goes, go, go on, uh, show me your shit. And I'm going to tell you exactly what's fucked up with it. <laughs> and so it was like, and we brought in another one of our team members who was not part of the fire service. And his mind was blown. He was like, you guys talk to each other this way in a professional setting? We're like, yeah, what are you talking about all the time? And so he goes, all right, go ahead, go ahead. Let's see what sort of fucked up thing you've come up with here. I'm going to tell you exactly why it's never going to be used in the fire service. That's the footing that we're starting on. Similar to our experience with our current CEO. And in walking him through the interface and showing him how it works, you could see the light bulb go on for a guy who's been on the job for 30 plus years. Like, oh my God, I knew something like this was going to come along. I just didn't think that someone would actually do it that would make it for firefighters. And that's, I think the biggest, to keep the answer somewhat short, when you walk into a panel full of chiefs or evaluators, company officers, chief officers, even firefighters, they want to evaluate our technology and we've set up a demo with them. The word technology touches off a firestorm of skepticism, the part of the pun. So when you walk in and you say, okay, well, we're firefighters too, That lowers some barriers, but they're still like, you're holding technology, it's like kryptonite. And so the minute that they see that this is really easy to use, it's intuitive, it's not gonna interrupt anything in any manner of the way that they do business. That's the part that's really enjoyable. Then it's the, when do we get started? And the training, and then the other part I really enjoy are the testimonials that come back at us. I was on the Calder fire this summer. The Calder fire for Canadian listeners that might be on the East Coast was up in the Sierra Nevada mountains, up above the city of South Lake Tahoe and wrapped around the lake. It was a huge fire. I don't know if it got up to 500,000 acres. I'm not sure if it hit the half million acre mark, because at the same time we had the Dixie fire, which did hit the million acre mark. So we had two major fires raging in the mountains of California at the same time. And every morning at morning briefing, because a lot of fire departments are using tablet command for their vehicle location, their mapping on those fires, especially when they're doing structure protection and navigation and mapping is really important, especially knowing where neighboring resources are for airdrops and things like that. And I would get guys that like grab me by the arm from different departments from all over California and Nevada and say, Man, this tablet command thing is a game changer. It's a game changer. Every time I if I had a nickel for every time guys would say, oh, it's a game changer, we could probably fund another portion of the company. And so that part is super enjoyable. Hey, we had this structure fire. I was able to look at the roof line and I could figure out that I could get my truck company on the Bravo Charlie side because there were no power lines there. It's that kind of stuff that makes that onboarding and conversion and then implementation process really, really enjoyable and sort of fuels those competitive juices to say like, yeah, we are helping guys have higher situational awareness and have a chance at some positive change in the fire service.
0: Where can people gather more information on it if they want to?
1: They can go to our website, tabletcommand.com. We're on all the social media channels, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And we post a lot of testimonials on our Instagram channel. And then we'll also post a lot of how-tos and, and things like that, just people using the software in a different capacity. I think in the testimonials, they'll see people that they recognize figuratively and literally that are like, yeah, this looks like a dirt under the nails kind of person that is actually talking about using technology successfully to make their job safer and better. So you can go to tabletcommand.com and get a lot of those testimonials. You can read our blog and get to know our company a little better as well.
0: Is there anything else that you want to cover that I haven't touched on? I want to make sure we make the most out of your time.
1: I just appreciate you bringing the human side into the fire service, that there are human beings underneath all this Superman gear. I am incredibly grateful for fellow people out there that are passionate about this career. It's a tremendous career and participating in podcasts like this. It's just fun to sort of sit around the virtual table, so to speak, and and talk shop and I hope that we can tip a beer sometime and and talk more shop and just celebrate our mutual love and excitement for the fire service
0: yeah i'm hoping eventually when everything starts to open up again that i can get down to the states and start attending some conferences so maybe we can cross paths there
1: right on yeah i'll be in indiana at, uh, in uh, indianapolis in a couple weeks so if you change your mind and you head <laughs> down there i will definitely be there
0: it was a real pleasure talking to you
1: absolutely thanks for having me it was a real honor